This is episode 6-6 of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. Wow, that was fast. What was fast? Our introduction of ourselves. Well, the people don't want to hear us. <laughs> I mean, they don't want to hear us just introduce ourselves. Well, I feel like if people have decided to listen to the show, they know that we're going to introduce ourselves at the beginning of each one. There's a thing that people do. They listen to podcasts on 1.5 speed to listen to more, you know. What? Yeah, it's a thing. Really? It's a thing. I don't understand. Well, they, they do slow it, it down. Speed it up, one point five. Oh, they speed it up. Oh, right. oh, oh, I see. That makes sense, actually. Right, because they want to listen to more. So, so we sound listen. like this. Well, but the thing is, I talk so fast anyway. They don't have to do that. So, I was listening to a recent episode. I talked pretty fast when I was listening you know, doing the show notes. You could just talk really slow. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that episode of Red Dwarf when they're in that time window where everything's moving slower. I've never seen that. Well, you've seen Red Dwarf. I've seen some episodes of Red Dwarf. Yeah, producer Dan and I are big fans of Red Dwarf. Producer Dan is great. Yeah, and we're both really big fans of Red Dwarf, you know that. Let's talk about this topic we have to talk about today. That's true. Our topic today is not Red Dwarf. And we're feeling in like a silly mood, but as soon as we start talking about the topic, we'll... Well, I think think the topic is, is is a really good outcome of a difficult situation. So we mentioned... Yeah, I would say it's an all right outcome. It's well, it's it's a reasonable yeah, outcome. Yeah, reasonable outcome. And so, so we talked uh, a great deal about uh, the idea that we were had something we couldn't announce at the end of the last episode, uh, and it turned out that uh, it was a, one of these th- editing things where, in fact, Dan edited the episode around exactly the same time when the announcement came out. So theoretically, we could have put in the part where we said what the thing was, but we couldn't. Even though it was already out, and we our have listeners like probably know. Infinite go arounds with yeah, we producer don't Dan Lynch. Make Dan have to do more work. So, so what's different about this episode also is that we are actually recording in person, which we don't normally do. Well, actually, since we've come back, sorry, I, I well actually do. I didn't mean to. I just want to remind you. I apologize <laughs> for the well. Actually, I would like to remind you that since we've come back, we have recorded more shows together than apart because of LCA. Oh, I forgot about that. Okay. More recently, we have been recording apart, but we're both uh, at a conference uh, together in a quiet hotel room. I made them change our hotel room because it wasn't quiet. I I feel bad for being a diva, but it is nicer that we have a quieter hotel room, which allows us to record. There is a um, another person in the hotel room who is a free software superstar who will remain nameless, who is just listening. So it's nice. It's like we have a live studio audience. You, you shouldn't have told them that because now they know somebody else got a preview of the episode. Our listeners are going to be jealous. Well, I figured that maybe um, if we do more than one recording, that maybe that person will decide to make an appearance. And so there's this buildup of suspense. Who could it be? So you're doing this again, you know. I where, love doing this. Our list, some of our listeners love it and some of them hate it. I don't think our listeners like to hear about things that aren't going to happen. But here's something that already happened. Already... We announced on April 2nd that the VMware lawsuit, uh, which Conservancy was supporting, that Christoph Helwig brought against VMware in Germany, represented by a lawyer named Till Jaeger, that lawsuit has concluded. 
Yeah. Um, so there was a negative decision in the lower court where the court did not decide, um, as people may recall, um, where the court did not decide on the merits of the case, but instead dismissed the case, um, saying that Christoph did not bring the appropriate meet the appropriate evidentiary bar um, to be able to bring his to bring his case, and that decision has now been upheld. Now, the interesting thing about that decision is that it doesn't actually get to any real details about the case. It doesn't discuss the GPL. It doesn't discuss really even multi-copyright held works under the GPL. It's specifically a procedural ruling about specific to German courts. Well, and also German, the German legal system is not, um, uh, it, the, the case wouldn't be precedential anyway. Indeed. And so in, in Germany, uh, our listeners may remember from past episodes where we talked about it, uh, Germany is a civil law legal system. Is that right, Karen? Mm-hmm. And, uh, As uh, opposed to common law. Right. In which countries like the United Kingdom, uh, the United States, uh, Australia are common law systems, uh, which have the precedential system where lower courts have to rely on decisions made by the higher courts. In Germany, uh, the judges have a lot more leeway to just simply look at the law and interpret, and they don't have to be bound by any specific precedent uh, from a previous court or anything a previous court has done. So that's the bad side of the outcome. The bad side of the outcome. The good side is is that VMware has chosen to comply with the GPL anyway. Yeah. So in their announcement, uh, in their announcement about their win. They also said that they would stop using the infringing code. And that's something we need to remind our listeners about. And this is a commonly confused issue with the GPL. And I had this common confusion, too, when I first learned about the GPL. So don't feel bad if if you think that way. Everybody does when you first hear about it. Because you hear about the GPL and you learn, oh, a copyleft license. That assures that if somebody ever combines it with proprietary code, that proprietary code has to be released. Well, that's not actually accurate. They have another option. And this is because uh, the GPL is primarily a copyright license. And one of the ways to get yourself out of a copyright infringement situation is to simply stop distributing the work that is infringing. That's so, true. And, and so what VMware has done <laughs> is they've, they've made a plan, at least, uh, to stop uh, distributing it. That's not happened yet at yeah. the time of uh, this, the release, probably. And they haven't given a timetable for it either. Um, but at the same time, they were um, the ones who prevailed in this suit. Right. So I think it really speaks volumes that even though that is the case, they um, have committed to complying um, to, to basically make sure that, that this case resolves. And so uh, the announcement that, uh, that, we, that, that we made um, linking back to Christoph's site um, was that he has decided not to appeal in part because of um, the fact that VMware has committed to coming into compliance through stopping um, to use VMK Linux. So from my point of view, the, the really bad thing about this outcome uh, is not necessarily uh, the fact that the German court uh, did not rule in a way that we would have liked. Uh, certainly we would have appreciated, I personally would have appreciated if the German court had looked in detail at the analysis I did, uh, which uh, as I understand it, Till Jaeger provided to the court uh, of how much of Christoph's code showed up in VMware's product. Uh, product. That, that is on Conservancy's website if you want to go back and read it. I think it might be useful to read even though the case is over, uh, just to look at how the kinds of analysis analysis that are done in a copyright infringement case to show that there was similarity between the infringing product and, and the original code. 
Yeah, we really put a lot of work into that um, analysis and presenting that analysis so that people could understand it. And that's not the only thing we put a lot of work into. Obviously, we uh, funded uh, Christoph financially. Uh, Christoph did fund some of the case himself with his own uh, resources, uh, but we uh, funded parts of it uh, from Conservancy. So it's it's never wonderful when you've spent resources and haven't gotten the perfect outcome that you want. My view is is that this is the kind of thing that happens in, a, a, I would say, social justice litigation. Litigation where you're trying to do some social good. Yeah, I mean, I think litigation in general is very hard to predict, and there are sometimes setbacks. And when you're trying to accomplish an overall goal like we are, um, you have to expect that at some point not every case is going to be a win. I mean, many of the the components of this case were similar to other cases that had been done before. The Till is the same lawyer who brought Harold's cases um, in Germany that were all successful, so he had the same successful legal team. Um, and also, we should mention that Harold was very supportive of the case and worked a, a good deal with Christoph as well um, in assisting uh, in the case as well. I think what what was different about it is we could is that we could never have predicted that Patrick McCarty would have started his trolling in um, in the interim. Basically, Ooh, we better explain this. So we should talk about who Patrick McCarty is and why he's important in the context of the M, of the VMware decision. You actually used a word that many people in the press are using uh, for it for Patrick's behavior, and it's a word, of course, borrowed from the patent world called troll which is usually meant to refer to someone who is a what they call in the patent world a non-practicing entity. What a non-practicing entity is is someone who holds a patent but does not actually produce any products in any marketplace or anywhere in the world that would actually practice the teachings of that patent. In other words, they don't make a product that they need a patent license for themselves if somebody else held the patent. They just bought the patent somewhere, somehow, and are now using it to attack people who actually make products. And this is a, uh, a really big problem, and um, there are companies set up specifically to do that, and they make a tremendous amount of money. Yeah, what's that one that's co- the, the biggest one? With, uh, Innovation, innovation, something? I forget, but yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a couple of different uh, well-known patent trolls. Um, and if you ever hear jokes about the Eastern District of Texas, uh, that's where uh, many of them set up. And in fact, the local economy in the Eastern District of Texas, the federal district in the United States, in the eastern part of Texas, there's literally a local economy completely created by patent trolls. They have, because you have to have, an, to bring a suit there, you have to have an office. So they open a little tiny, there's all these buildings where there's little tiny <laughs> doors where one person can sit in it, which nobody's ever actually there. Uh, I've, I've, I think there was, it was this American Life story I listened to that talked about patents, uh, the problems with patents, where they talked about going into these things and just seeing rows and rows of these places, an empty office building with one room offices just filled with patent trolls who don't actually operate there. They just need a address to file a lawsuit there. So that's what trolling usually refers to, is that kind of patent trolling, people who just buy patents and attack uh, companies. Patrick's really not that. Yeah, I was going to say, in this instance, it's a little bit different because Patrick um, was, I don't think he still has been contributing more recently, but he was a, um, a very important contributor to... Um, to NetFilter. Right. So NetFilter is the part of Linux uh, that is uh, d- deals with 
network um, firewalls and being able to uh, write scripts to control how network traffic is processed uh, on a Linux-based uh, device. And Patrick was part, an official part of the NetFilter team. He was one of the people who contributed, which, by the way, is the same team where Harold Velta has made most of his contributions, ironically enough. Right. And, um, and so uh, because uh, folks may remember from when Christoph filed his suit against VMware that the German system is very different, at least from the U.S. system, which Bradley and I are familiar with. Um, more intimately, um, where in Germany the proceedings of the the, the court proceedings are not necessarily made public. Um, so the filings that each party makes in the United States, those filings would be part of a public docket, and anyone could have access to them. But in Germany, the um, the the presumptions are different, and so those um, uh, all of the filings need to be kept um, or, or, or are not made public by default. And there are a number of implications for that. And we wrote about this back in 2016 uh, because we were very concerned and there was a lot of concern in the industry. Um, and I've talked about this in some of my talks about GPL enforcement that some folks may have listened to uh, from, from conferences where there were a lot of people in what I call the compliance industrial complex who were going around using the fact that McCarty was suing people in Germany because the records were not public. It was difficult to know how big the problem was and how big the threat was. And they were drumming up scare tactics about, the, at first it was this unknown developer who used to contribute to Linux who was now suing people. Uh, and we decided, we were actually the first organization at Conservancy to go public, to talk about Patrick doing this. Uh, and we decided to do that. It was a diff difficult decision because you never want to admonish someone publicly unless you really have to. But we felt it was absolutely necessary. Well, and we did it by, um, by thinking about what is different about what we're doing than what Patrick is doing. A lot of the things people were saying about Patrick were things that they had said about us. They said we were unreasonable. They said we were providing, you know, off-the-wall interpretations of um, of the licenses. They said things that were real exaggerations and not true um, because they were trying to diminish our enforcement efforts. And so we met those criticisms. We, we faced them with with a, a lot of skepticism because we thought, well, maybe maybe the, these enforcement actions are like our enforcement actions. And so we took the opportunity to think about how do we do our enforcement actions? Why do we think our enforcement actions are the right thing to do? How is it that we do them to make sure that we are not doing the kind of thing that feels more like what a troll might do and more like ethical enforcement? And so we went and we wrote, we went, we wrote down um, our, our principles of community-oriented enforcement, um, and then we worked with the FSF, and um, we uh, jointly published or co-published um, a document um, that you can see on Conservancy's website, where we uh, we commit to an, a number of of rules for ourselves about that we follow, and that way we would bring transparency to our enforcement, and also let violators know that there are ground rules when we contact them, and that it's better for them to engage with us and try to come into compliance um, than to fight us unnecessarily to close down and to to not engage. And the idea with that was that today's violators are tomorrow's contributors, and we should treat them accordingly. So when we published those principles, uh, I was actually in communication with Patrick McCarty before he started. Uh, we actually spoke to him. We've talked about this many times publicly. We spoke to Patrick about the idea of working with Conservancy when he was thinking about starting GPL enforcement. And then rather suddenly, he stopped answering our emails. And then about six to eight months later, we began hearing 
about lawsuits brought by a German developer who wasn't Harold and so forth, and eventually it became clear it was the same person we had been talking to. I actually had his mobile number uh, still in my phone today, um, so I started texting him and emailing him to say, we published these principles, we'd like you to endorse them. We'd like you to come out and say why you're doing this, because when I spoke to Patrick, he was very clear with me that he wanted to do this for ethical reasons, for very similar reasons. He told me any money he was going to make, he actually told me he was going to donate to an orphanage, and that he was focused on getting compliance and he wanted people to get the source code on these products, all the things that, well, I, mean, I guess I wanted to hear. Um, and it turned out that he was not focusing in enforcement in that way. And that's what led to us publishing the actual statement that named him. Yeah, and the principles that we published were also helpful because the NetFilter team was able to use them as a tool. Um, so they, were, they asked their team to endorse the principles, and they all did except for Patrick. And so when Patrick refused to endorse the principles or ask for us to revise the principles to be something he could sign on to, um, when he didn't, he didn't do either of those things, the team was able to suspend him from the project. So we were happy that we were to help to provide this tool to suspend this person who was having um, unethical enforcement. Um, and, and this is all going on in the background. It took us a long time to do this because you know, we're not just going to take the word of lawyers in, ba in smoky back rooms that these things were happening. We had to make sure that we had enough evidence that we were convinced that, in fact, this was the case. And then when he didn't endorse the principles, that was sort of the, the end of that. And we knew what we were dealing with. So, And so our listeners are probably wondering, well, wait a second, what does this have to do with the VMware case? Well, keep in mind the timelines. Both things are happening in parallel. So the VMware lawsuit happened or, or started on March 5th, 2015. So that was the moment when the VMware lawsuit started, which was before we published the principles and before we published about Patrick McCarty, and even frankly, before Patrick McCarty started his enforcement work in Germany. So while Christoph's lawsuit against VMware was working its way through the German courts, which takes a long time in any, any country, it seems there's a very long lead time and, and waiting around with the litigation to, to get the court docket, get onto the court docket and get moving forward. This all happened in parallel. So by the time a couple of months ago that the case that Christoph brought made it to the higher court, Patrick had filed many, many lawsuits and gotten many, many settlements. And he used a different technique than um, what we were doing. So what we were doing was we were trying to isolate the question that was in dispute, um, basically to isolate the derivative, derivative works question that was at the heart of this issue, because um, VMware had basically said that they they felt like they weren't, they, you know, they had done everything they had to do and would do no more. And so... Um, and so when Christoph filed his suit, he teed up that um, that claim as a as a as a clean claim um, to increase the chances of having a good ruling on it. And in fact, um, we got VMware in compliance with all the other things they had because I, a lot of people might not remember this. I wanted to bring it up for conservancy. The VMware situation started as a regular BusyBox violation. They had failed to offer for source code a BusyBox, uh, which is the standard type of violation you see. It's called a we call it a no source or offer violation. They didn't provide any source code for BusyBox, nor did they offer the customer any source code for BusyBox. When we saw that, we raised the issue there, and the BusyBox compliance was achieved in a matter really of six to eight months, uh, which is pretty typical for um, a well-acting party. A well-acting party will usually come into compliance in six to eight months, and and we tend not to do lots of cases like that anymore. Uh, the reason why is that the 
parties who just make an honest mistake, we're at a point now in the history of compliance with copyleft licenses that merely flagging the issue. Uh, for example, I recently learned of a, of a large company that was violating the GPL, and, uh, and within a matter of hours, we were in a situation where we found a free software developer who knew somebody inside the company who was going to talk to them and we're actually going to work with them to write up something that explains how to be compliant on their type of product. So those kinds of things happen all the time now. Ten years ago, that didn't happen. If you look at our BusyBox lawsuit that Conservancy brought in 2009 or 2008, I think we filed that, maybe as far as 2007, but late 2000s. You had to file a lawsuit even to get people to listen to you about the no source or offer stuff. So from our point of view, that era is over. We're at a point now when if it's just a mundane no source or offer, somebody just made an honest mistake, you don't you never need litigation basically. You only need litigation in cases. Sure, because they'll 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 do something about it, but they'll only partially comply. So you move past the no source or offer right. exactly. really fast. Exactly, exactly. And 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 you end up very quickly as we did with VMware. So with VMware, all the mundane parts of the violation were resolved quickly, but they still weren't in compliance because we discovered while we were investigating the BusyBox violation that the VMware product uh, combined proprietary code of theirs uh, with Linux uh, to be able to access disks and, and talk to the network. Uh, so that was what caused us to be able to tee up that issue that Karen was talking about. So unlike the way that the VMware suit was brought by Christoph and Till, um, the way Patrick was doing his enforcement was that he was approaching companies and uh, with their non-compliance and um, and signing settlement letters with them. So basically, getting into a settlement agreement with them um, where there were provisions that would kick off if the um, it, yeah the provision was so the first I just want to go back one second. The first thing he would do is he actually picked. Those ones that we are not as worried about anymore, that just plain no source or offer. I don't, I don't, I didn't know the GPL stuff was in my product. Um, rather than writing to those companies and saying, hey, did you know there's GPL stuff in your product? Do you have an engineer I can talk to? He just went off and sued them right away. That, so that's how it started. He would just sue these companies that had no source or offer immediately. Right. And, then, and, 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 and then what he would do is he would enter these settlement agreements. And in the settlement agreements, there were provisions that covered future noncompliance. And the companies that were targeted were much less focused on those features. They wanted to make the, the issue at hand go away, so they signed these settlement agreements. But what, what those provisions did was that um, as soon as the company violated again on a product, they were in breach of that contract, which made it very easy for Patrick to pull them back into court. And it also made it easy for him to use what's called fast-track proceedings in Germany. And so in the time that it took Christoph's suit to to slowly go through the court system for an ordinary case, there were um, uh, quite a number of Patrick suits that were going on fast track. Right. And, and they were able to go on fast track because he was mostly settling them so quickly. So rather than doing what Conservancy does, what the FSF does when they enforce the GPL, which is basically try to get the conversation going with engineering and get the engineering issues resolved because compliance, the details of compliance are mostly an engineering question. Complete corresponding source code is an engineering job. So we get in touch with the engineers, we get their source code right, we get them to release it. Patrick offered none of that help. 
he would say, you're in violation. I'm not going to help you. You just need to sign the settlement agreement. And I have actually seen uh, confidentially two of these settlement agreements. Because remember, again, German legal system confidential. I have been shown two of them. And uh, in both of them, he has kind of balloon payments, uh, you call them, Mm -hmm. where if he comes back six months later, a year later, and they haven't all by themselves, with no help at all, gotten into compliance, they have to pay him another payment. And that's how he was able to use these fax track things to settle quickly and just have a source of revenue where he would just come back to the company six months later, a year later, and get another payment. And when he brought these suits, he would say that he was acting on behalf of the Linux kernel community, which caused the Linux kernel community to become very upset with him. Reasonably so. Reasonably so. And so during some of these court cases, the, the kernel developers started to providing started to provide letters in support of the comp- of, of actually the violators because they thought that it was so unfair um, what Patrick was doing. He was basically just simply monetizing compliance for his own personal benefit, and so. That coordinated effort was laudable, but in light of, of the German court system, it provided an extremely unfortunate context for Christoph's suit. And this is exactly why I think when we call Patrick McCarty a troll, which the press often does, it actually fails to make an important point. The reason Patrick is successful is because at one point in his personal history, he was a community contributor to a free software project, and no one would have predicted, the NetFilter team, people who worked with him, I talked to many of them, no one would have predicted that he would begin to behave this way. And so because this behavior is so strange, and if you think about how a court might look at it, right, courts do not follow our community. They don't listen to podcasts about free software. They don't, and generally they don't want to read press stories and particularly about cases they're going to hear. So when you look at Germany being, I mean, compared to you know bigger countries like China or the US, Germany's, uh, Germany's the biggest country in Europe, but it's still small compared to say the US or, or China. And so these German judges probably all know each other and they start hearing about this stuff. And it's tough for them looking far in advance to really distinguish between the two because 15 years ago, I wouldn't be able to distinguish between Christoph and Patrick. Yeah, I mean, none, I don't know that the ju- the judges know each other. So let's. Are you I, sure they don't? I don't. I, know. I, I'm sure some judges know each other, and I'm sure they don't all know each other. That's true. Um, but certainly, it, certainly, there is a lot of attention. In fact, during the VMware hearings, which uh, Harold Balta posted a few blogs, he he actually went to the hearings and and, and sat in, um, and then wrote blog post summaries of the hearings. They actually mentioned that they saw. Uh, they saw that there was international tension on the case. Yeah, I think that I I really want to note, though, that while all of this behavior is perfectly reasonable and there is confidentiality... Which which, which behavior you mean was reasonable? Not Patrick's behavior, but the behavior by the Linux kernel and the companies that were attacked. You know, uh, while, while, while that behavior is reasonable, there was something insidious happening, which is that because of this veneer of confidentiality was happening... All the discussions were happening in the back room, and no one was willing to talk publicly publicly about it or even have any kind of quasi-public forum where people were sharing information for the benefit of the whole community. And I think that was a really big a really big problem. And, and certainly, um, I, I mean, I, I admit now, having been through uh, you know, working closely with someone, I mean, again, Conservancy was not a party to this case. We were uh, giving logistical assistance, funding, technical assistance to Christoph. Uh, not that Christoph's not very... One of the best uh, developers knows more about this custody system than anybody. As I'm saying, that's, I'm not saying Christoph can't handle himself, but he has other work to do. So we we provided some some technical assistance uh, in preparing stuff for the lawyers to read and, and study about the the technical situation. I want to be clear about that. But gi- but given the confidentiality of the German legal system, I, I I mean I understand this is somewhat of a U.S. bias, but 
I, after being through this, I'm very uncomfortable. People have been accusing us and saying like, "Why didn't you, Conservancy, release all the documents from the from 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 the case that say it's it's not allowed in Germany?" And it's not our case, <laughs> but there is a decision, a final decision that right. is published. Right. It's only in and, Germany. And I know that I know that um, Till Jaeger uh, had to do a lot of work to to be able to do that. It's not something that was automatic yeah. um, because we published one of the earlier uh, rulings as well. I think the lower court was one of the, one of the rulings we published yes, as well. Yes, and we, we got that also in translation. Yeah. Also in translation, um, but we, but that wasn't automatic. I mean, people who are I mean, I think a lot of U.S. lawyers they they just I mean, it's just a fact of the matter. They don't study. I, I mean, did you take a course in civil legal systems? I I actually did, but it was, it was optional. A, it was it was an elective, yeah. right? So so I bet most people go through law school, and even people become law school professors. They don't know very much about the civil legal system. So so we we've seen a lot of people. Um, who purport to be experts saying we've screwed up because we haven't published things, but that's not how it works in Germany. Right. It's just a, it's just a different legal system. Yeah. And so, and so yeah. I mean, and I have to admit that I, I feel, I, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of don't like it. I have to admit, I, I love transparency. Yes, we definitely love transparency and it really sucks that we were unable to publish all of the documents. Yep. But I, but, but I really you know, think... I, and that's for Christoph's safety as well, because yep. you can also get in trouble in Germany if you publish stuff from a legal system that you're not supposed to. Like, so if Christoph, I'm sure he has access to all those documents, but if he just emailed to us two of them and said, put them on the website, Christoph would get in trouble. Yes, but the but the, but the way that this affected the whole Patrick McCarty situation is that that... that, that Fear of going public and the fear of the um, of, of repercussions meant that only a few parties were centrally um, coordinating efforts, and it was not an effective use of the the, yeah. the full range of organizations and mechanisms that we have in our community. And then um, the unfortunate result of this is that is that in several uh, multiple German lawyers have told me that it's obvious to them that the Patrick McCarty lawsuits negatively impacted Christoph's case. Yeah. And so so I'm, I'm going to say something incredibly U.S. biased. I've already been a little U.S. biased here. We're going to go real far to say, like, just imagine if what had been happening is um, sorry, Patrick had been bringing these lawsuits in the United States, which every single one of them had published publicly. Within a couple of weeks, the press, at least the technology press, would have figured it out because all the complaints would be public and all the proceedings would be public. And then suddenly you'd have all these stories about Patrick doing that. And meanwhile, of course, if Christoph had also brought his case in the US, which Christoph didn't want to do that, which is totally reasonable, his copyrights, he can pick the venue he wants to enforce in. But imagine if he had brought the case in the US, then that would have been public before Patrick's cases. And there would have actually been a public debate about what was going on. And that would have influenced, I think, a lot of the outcomes. I think for sure. And it certainly wouldn't have dragged on so long. And there mm. wouldn't have been so many companies falling into the same track. Yeah. Same trap over and over again. Yeah, and so Karen and I are talking quite a bit about how we can do even more um, to educate about what Patrick's doing. Uh, there are rumors, again, that he's uh, he's uh, still doing it now. He's, he's sort of moved on from what we heard from big companies to really going after tiny companies um, to basically doing it as a, as a mass mailing kind of thing um, and going after lots and lots of them instead of just a few because some of the big companies obviously fought back. I think at this point the big companies... Uh, they're, they're educated. They're, they're in educated. the know. They're, they're not going to... Right. And so it's actually... It's, I think it's kind of funny because... Uh, I, I've, I've been getting kind of vibes from, obviously, big companies that they don't care anymore about Patrick McCarty because it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but I'm much more worried about those small companies because in my experience of doing GPL enforcement, I think, Karen, your experience probably is the same, that, uh, that the small companies are the ones who are kind of in the toughest position because they have a Chinese upstream, usually somebody in Taiwan or China who's made a system on a chip. I'm talking specifically embedded devices here. They ship... 
this wireless router or whatever. They have very thin margins. They import it into the U.S. or Europe. And then th that Chinese um, upstream that has a system on a chip, they might be violating the GPL. And that small company doesn't have the leverage to demand the source code from their upstream vendor. Whereas a big company, and this happened, uh, I mean, there's been cases where we've done GPL enforcement uh, for BusyBox specifically um, against very large corporations, a very large U.S. corporation. We did a BusyBox enforcement matter, and it resolved very amicably and easily. We don't know about it. You don't know the name of the company because it was not a, a, a lawsuit because they were able to go to that Chinese, it was a Chinese manufacturer, they were able to go to that manufacturer, demand the source code, and because it was such a large U.S. company, they were able to say, we're not going to do business with you anymore, and we're most of your business. So you might as well give us the source code. And sure enough, they did. Small company does not have that power. Yeah, and it's emblematic of some of the problems in the in in the field overall. Um, you know, we think of of copyleft as a as a as a leveling type of mechanism in an industry, and it's simply not when there's that inequality. And I think that we're seeing this not just within the, the mechanisms of enforcement, but also um, in, in, in the other infrastructure. And we can probably do an entire yeah. other podcast about that. Well, and that's why you and me, Karen, we work as watchdogs uh, to make sure that everybody gets equal ground with copyleft. Because as I always say, and, I, and you know, copyleft is not magic pixie dust. Somebody has to be looking out for it, making sure everybody's treated equally under copyleft, and, and that's uh, we do quite a bit of that at a conservancy. I feel like that deserves some rock and music after it. So, Karen, before we wrap up, I want to make sure I mention one last thing. Uh, that we didn't really, uh, that might have confused people. So I, a lot of people, when I start talking about how there's these upstreams, they often say, well, why don't you sue the upstream? And the fact of the matter is, is that there's really no way to go into China and enforce the GPL. I wish there were. I, no one's come up with a plan because there's really not a way to to enter China and enforce the GPL easily. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was a lawsuit enforcing the GPL um, not too long ago. So I in think China? in China. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I think it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And it's a very corrupt system, right? The government is tightly integrated with the technology industry, which is producing these products. And I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, as a, as a copyleft activist, I don't want to go into a country that I know is corrupt <laughs> and try to bring a GPL enforcement action. I mean, the other problem is, and I think we've talked about that before, this before on our show, is that you have to have the, the initial company that you're contacting point their finger at their upstream as well. Right. They have to be able to say, actually, we, we are a victim of a... Of, of, uh, GPL non-compliance in order for us to do anything. And a lot of companies are unwilling to even do that. Right. And the reason that's the case is they're usually locked in to this vendor by the time we find out about them because they have a production line running um, in China that's producing the devices and they've picked the board and they've picked the form factor and all those different things. So to change vendors is often a multi-million dollar undertaking even for a small company. So I want to clear that up with regard to that issue. And I think pretty much we're going to close this chapter on on this issue i i would it's have it's a bittersweet end yeah i i mean i'm i'm hoping that uh, vmware will uh, accelerate the schedule and get into compliance more quickly but they have committed to doing so so i, I hope they get it done quickly and um yeah I, and frankly as as our listeners know there are hundreds of gpl violations out there uh that need attention so we're going to turn our attention to uh, to other ones at this point at conservancy yeah so what do we have coming up on our next show, Karen? Well, we have an exciting episode coming up where we're going to talk about um, uh, two specific additional permissions 
um, that have come out um, in the, the last for the GPL that have come out, um, and uh, I, I think just last, in the last, last year, last year or so. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the um, the kernel enforcement statement additional permission, and right. we're going to talk about the uh, Red Hat GPL cooperation commitment. Yeah, which I call the Red Hat cooperation. The Red commitment. Hat cooperation commitment, right. um, and we're going to um, compare them and discuss them. So we'll talk about that on the next show. And in the meantime, what should our listeners do, Karen? Our listeners should help us be able to continue to providing this riveting and wonderful podcast. And how how, podcast. how would they possibly podcast. be able to do that? Please donate to sfconservancy.org because Bradley and I can do this because we work at Conservancy. We do all the great work we talk about on the show, but it also helps us be able to have the time to do the show. And where do they go to donate? Did I just say sfconservancy.org? Slash supporter. Slash supporter. And how much do they donate? As much as they possibly can. <laughs> but, but for $120 a year, which is only $10 a month, uh, which if you live in an industrialized country, uh, that's you know less than a meal out. Uh, and uh, for an evening, just do one less meal out a month, and you can support Conservancy. So please do that. And we would be really grateful. Any donation really helps us. So with that, we'll end the show and talk to you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Free As in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free As in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website SF conservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F All episodes of Free as in Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. Do you uh, think that our listeners remember that this lawsuit is happening and what it's about? I think so. Okay. I hope so. Anyway, good. I, I mean, if they don't, sure. we haven't been doing our jobs very well. Have well, we? that's what. Well, I suppose <laughs> so. I guess I was just worried that we didn't really start well, with an explanation to to begin with. Well, but I think we summarized it pretty well. Good. I'm in. Bradley's looking at me now. So because we're recording in person, I can report that Bradley is looking at me with a disapproving glance because I interrupted the flow of our recording in order to go back and. Now I'm and now I'm stuck on procedure. The wonderful This is the perfect thing. time to go to a break. The wonderful thing is that because it's one file, I don't have any qualms about asking Dan to edit that little part out. So uh. it'll be just fine. Uh, so this will probably be you're hearing this probably at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> we do love our amusing finales. <laughs>